You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our live chat position or uh, session, I should say, for this particular week. Uh, I'm glad we can start off with a couple of questions that's been submitted by social media, and then we'll get into whatever questions you all have that you can submit to me in the live chat area. Looks like I have a little bit of technical, but it doesn't appear that the sound is registering on the little monitor it gives me, but you folks say you can hear it just fine, and that's the only thing that really matters. So let's get into the questions that have been submitted, a couple of them through email or social media. And I think we start off with a good one by a pastor friend of mine named Jim. He says, can you comment on the quote, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Do you agree with this quote or are there issues with it? Well, let me say, in large measure, I agree with that quote. Let me read it to you again. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Now, when it says charity there, what it really means there is love. It's using kind of the old English, the old form of talking about that, uh, that you get from the King James Version having to do with charity in 1 Corinthians 13. Really what it means is love. So in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. Look, I think that is a basic good framework. We all understand that in the Christian world, there's things we disagree on. There's things we disagree on having to do with how we approach the scriptures, the things we disagree with and having to do with the Christian life, emphasis on this, emphasis on that. And I think it's important for us to say that on the essential things, now that quote that the pastor friend of mine asked me to comment on, it's a little bit loaded because of course you get to define what the essentials are and what are essentials to one person might not be the same as what are the essentials to another person. But in those things that are truly essential, and I mean the things really on the core of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, what he did for us on the cross, uh, the things contained for us in the Apostles' Creed, those kind of things, those are uh, essentials and we should be unified in the Christian world on those things. Now, non-essentials, let, let me rattle off to you things. Now, when I say non-essential, I'm not saying unimportant. There are things that I believe are important for our biblical understanding or especially for our church life, or maybe they're important to me and to kind of the group that I come from. Important isn't the same as essential. So here are some things that I regard as important, but not essential to have a right understanding on. Uh, things like the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, uh, things like uh, the uh, whole scenario of how Jesus is going to come again and what we call the end time sort of thing and eschatology, uh, things like church government. Again, I think those are important, but I don't regard them as essential in the Christian life. But then in all things that we should show love to one another. And that means even if someone is wrong in their doctrine, you have a responsibility to love them. And what does that mean? Well, love may very well mean confronting them with their false doctrine if it's wrong in the essentials. But listen, if you have to confront them with their false doctrine, you need to do it in a way that displays love. 
love in that you're not going to lie about them. You're going to represent their ideas accurately. Oh, there's such a problem with this in the world today. Uh, the Christian world, the Christian world of, you know, sort of apologetics or people who consider themselves watchmen or that kind of thing, which again, I want to stress, I think there's a valid place for those people within God's family, very much so. But it's important that they be truthful about the people that they are analyzing. And there's a lot of sloppy apologetics or watchman work that goes on in the world today. So we do it by treating them kindly. We do it by treating them accurately. We doing it by saying what we can say in a way that communicates the love of Jesus Christ, even though it stands for truth. Just like Paul said that we should uh, speak the truth in love. Isn't it funny how we always want to sort of cheat on one side or another? We want to speak the truth, but we don't care about love or we want to be loving, but we don't care about truth. No, God calls us to do both of those things, to speak the truth in love. And I wouldn't thought about that. Uh, sometimes when I listen to some of these guys, a podcast or YouTube or whatever it might be, and they seem to be these hypercritical, in my view, guys, that sort of just, well, one of the things I ask myself is, is there anybody that these folks approve of? And I got to say, oftentimes when I really listen to them and with, from what they say publicly, you would not have the impression there's a single person that they approve of. Well, that's wrong. And uh, I, I think that we should have a bigger heart than that in the body of Christ and be able to say not only what we're against, though there is a place for that, but also to be able to say what we're for. And um, the, 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 not just the ideas, but if you're going to speak out against people, then let us know who you're for as well. Okay, that's one question. Let me get to one more question that came in uh, via email. And uh, this is from a German friend named Svenja. And uh, Svenja, I'm grateful for the question that you bring. Here's the question. She says, in your Q&A from November 15th, you said in an answer to a question about male authority and head covering in 1 Corinthians 11. The principle goes all the way back to creation, but the way that it was expressed in Corinthian culture is no longer relevant for an expression in our culture today. She says, I tend to agree with you but how do I reconcile that with the principle that biblical teachings are true for all agents, considering certain covenants, of course, and that we shouldn't twist biblical teachings in order to make it acceptable to our culture as historical criticism would like us to do? And what are, in your opinion, are the other expressions how we would demonstrate male headship in our culture? Well, Svenja, I think that is a great question, something that people often do. If you go from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there, Paul speaks about wearing head coverings in the Corinthian church and in the church of that day. And as I teach on that, if you want to go to either the question and answer thing that Svenja is referring to, or to my teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that you can get on the website, EnduringWord.com, I want you to understand that I, I really see it like this, that the principle that Paul explains there of there being and the importance of male authority and what my people might call headship, uh, both in the church and in the home, that principle is rooted in things that go back to creation. And so the principle remains. What I was trying to explain is how it is expressed may differ from culture to culture. How an honoring of male headship was expressed in the Corinthian or the Roman culture of that day was by the wearing of a head covering by a woman. Here's the thing I think is significant 
is that wearing of a head cover in Corinthian culture was true whether a person was in church or not. Do, do you get what I'm saying there? In other words, this wasn't just a church expression. This is something that the culture recognized as well. Now, in our broader culture today, the idea of wearing a head covering does not communicate being under authority at all. It, it doesn't communicate that uh, outside the church for sure. And almost for the most part, I would say almost universally in the church, it doesn't communicate. It just communicates a tradition or whatever. Here's my point is that what isn't important is the cultural expression, but what is important is the principle behind it. Now, Svenja asks a very good question. What would uh, express male headship in our culture today? And the answer to that, Svenja, is there is nothing that a person can wear in our culture that expresses that. If a woman wears a dress, it doesn't express it. If a woman wears a head covering, it doesn't express that. If a woman wears, I don't know, a, whatever it would be, T-shirt or whatever you want to say, there's nothing that a woman can wear in our culture that says in the culture and in the church, I'm under male authority. I'm, I'm recognizing the authority in the church and in the home. So I don't think that there's anything that we wear today that expresses that. It's more the actions and the attitude that expresses, I'm going to respect God's order of authority in the church and in the home. Um, so that, that's just kind of thing. There, there is nothing to wear in our culture. Now, I do want to say this, that if a Christian woman wants to wear a head covering in church meetings or otherwise, she has complete freedom in Jesus Christ to do so. Absolutely. I, I would never say you're prohibited from wearing a head covering. If a woman wants to wear a head covering, if she feels that she wants, great. Here's my thing. Just don't think it makes you any more right with God than your non-head covering wearing sister. But if you want to do it, we have freedom in Christ to wear the head covering. We have freedom in Christ to not do it. What we have the obligation in Christ to do, the obligation is simply this. The obligation is to respect God's order of authority, both in the church and out. But as far as say, th this is just the difference is that, it's that it doesn't say anything in the culture at large. And number two, there is no uh, cultural expression that someone can wear in the culture today that expresses what it did in the Roman culture. So that's my answer to that, Svenja. I hope that's helpful. And now let me get to some of the questions that are, are on, on our live chat. All right, let me look here. Thanks for the feedback on uh, people letting me know that they can hear me. That's great. Uh, Isaac says, if I am knocking on doors, so to speak, he puts that in quotations. If I am knocking on doors to find out where the Lord is leading my wife and I, is that weak faith for lack of better terms? Does his will always come with a for sure feeling or moving? Thank you, <laughs> Isaac, my brother, my friend. I can tell you that God's guidance does not always come for a with a for sure uh, feeling uh, in in how we're led. Uh, again, I, I really want to to express that. Not only is it true that God's leading doesn't always come with a for sure feeling, it's also true that sometimes when we feel for sure that we're following God's leading, we're mistaken. So we can't take God's will to be a matter of our feelings. 
the first thing we do is make sure that to the best of our ability, we're aligned with God's will as it's revealed in the word. Now, Isaac, I know you know this, but I'm just saying for the sake of, of our viewing or listening audience, if you want to know God's will, go to the book. That, that's the place where we learn God's will first and foremost. You want to know God's will? Go to the book and make sure to the best of your ability, we're not perfect on this side of eternity, but to the best of your ability, your life is aligned with God's will uh, in the present day. Now, having that said, it's totally natural and totally good, Isaac, to um, knock on doors to see what God may open. D just do the best you can. Let the Lord lead you through some sanctified common sense and see what God may do in leading you and your wife. I mean, I think this is a very important thing for us to do, just to make steps of faith and see what God would do. Uh, that's not an expression of unbelief. Most of the time, we tend to be too inactive waiting for God's will. Now, sometimes God will speak to us. God will lead us by his Holy Spirit and say, don't do anything until I show you. I suppose there's times like that. But most of the time, God's leading will be, you get active and I'll lead you along the way. When I was a young Christian, I heard somebody use this figure of speech. You've probably heard it too. I mean, I think it's a popular one. But they said this, they said, it's hard to steer a parked car. And what they mean by that is, you know, you can't really turn the steering wheel on a car that's parked. You, you need to be moving. And once we're moving in some direction or other, it's amazing how God has a way of just guiding us to exactly where he wants us to be. Bless you, Isaac. I hope that's helpful for you. Next one is from Andrea. Andrea says, what does above reproach as one of the distinctive marks of those who aspire to the office of elder or deacon mean? And would that standard have changed within the last 2000 years? Okay, Andrea, I think that's a great question. Let me repeat her question just for the sake of our audience. What does above reproach as one of the distinctive marks of those who aspire to lead the office of elder or deacon mean? Okay, uh, again, she's quoting from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. So that's the first question. What does it mean? And secondly, has that standard changed in the last 2,000 years? Okay, first, let me deal with your first question. What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, reproach is basically shame or humiliation. And the idea is, is that the person doesn't live a shameful life, one that can be validly criticized for being sinful or out of God's will or just disobedient to God. Um, if somebody has a life with obvious and apparent disobedience and shameful conduct, they are not above reproach. They are in reproach. They're in the shame of how their life looks at the time. So really, that's the issue right there. So that's basically what it means. Now, I, I do have to take pains to say, it doesn't mean that a person is above criticism because um, Jesus was criticized and his enemies tried to shame him. Paul was criticized and his enemies tried to shame him. So it's not that criticism or attack doesn't exist, it's that it has no valid basis. There's nothing shameful in their life, uh, embarrassing, something that would be a disgrace to the kingdom of God. Okay, that's what it means. Second question is, has that standard changed within the last 2000 years? Andrea, the answer to that is no. 
people who are recognized as leaders among God's people should have a reputation that is not shameful, that is not a disgrace. Now, does this mean that someone who has sinned in some way and that sin has become public, that they can never be in ministry again? Well, I want you to know Christians differ on that. Let's say, you know, I mean, there's lots of situations where a Christian leader, a pastor, an evangelist, a leader, whatever, um, falls into some kind of sexual immorality and it becomes known and they lose whatever position of leadership or ministry that they had. Well, the question is, can they ever be restored? Again, I wanna say there's different opinions on that in the Christian world. My opinion is, is that it certainly is not impossible for that person to be restored to some kind of ministry, but it's important that they are no longer primarily known for their shameful conduct but they're primarily known for their humble repentance and restoration. That in the words of somebody, I don't know, Spurgeon or somebody said this, that their repentance has become as notorious or more notorious than their sin. That in my mind is restoration and someone becoming above reproach. Uh, Because look, our testimony for ministry isn't that we're so worthy. It isn't that we're so holy. It's that we're serious about the gospel. We're serious about living a transformed life in Jesus Christ. And that's evident to people around us. So I hope that's helpful. Okay, next, um, Jim writes this question. He says, I recently read from a televangelist that he teaches the earth is 14 billion years old and not 6,000 years old. I've always believed it's 6,000 years old. Am I wrong? Okay, Jim. Great question. What you're talking about is you're talking about the debate that Christians have between either there being a young earth or an old earth. Now, let me say categorically, I believe that it is essential for Christians to be creationists, that they believe that God created the heavens and the earth and all of life on earth, and that it was not just some blind mechanism of chance or evolution or something like that. It's essential that Christians be creationists. However, within the creationist camp, there's differing opinions among Christians. And one differing opinion among Christians with that is some Christians are young earth creationists. Those are those who believe that the earth is relatively young, 6,000, 10,000, whatever, 20,000, whatever, but relatively young. There are other people who believe that the earth is very old, 14 billion years, whatever it would be. Now, let me say, I believe that neither of those positions should be a test of faith. I I believe that um, it could be either one. um, And I'm not going to go into the biblical details for that, but we shouldn't automatically dismiss old earth creationists as being heretics. Now, they might be wrong, or you could say young earth creationists might be wrong, but either position is not one of heresy. It's one of a differing biblical opinion. My tendency, and again, I try not to be categorical because I'm not a scientist. I'm a Bible guy. I'm not a science guy. And I, I understand that there's arguments to be made on both sides, but my tendency is to believe that the earth is relatively young, but God created it with age built in. That's kind of my 
general standpoint. And I understand there's debate and, and, you know, people have problems with that general position. I get that, but that's my general approach. Uh, I just want you to know, Jim, that there are people that have differing opinions on this in the Christian world. Thank you very much for your question. Okay, next question comes from uh, Menashe. Menashe says, hey, David, I'm a 17-year-old from Perth. Hey, was in the city of Perth a year or two ago. Love that city. Great city. Hey, David, I'm a 17-year-old from Perth. I've been to church since birth, but only three weeks ago had the revelation of Matthew 7.21 and want to really know God. What would you suggest I do moving forward? Well, Menashe, that's great. Um, I'm going to go and turn in my Bible to Matthew chapter 17, verse 21, because uh, believe it or not, I don't have the entire Bible memorized. And even though I know that comes from the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know the exact passage here. So Matthew chapter 17, verse 21, simply says this. Oh, wow. Menashe, I'm great you bring this up. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Wow, Menashe, I think that's a thrilling verse that God has made alive to your heart. That simple understanding that it's not enough for us to talk about knowing God. We need to know him. It's not enough for us to say, Lord, Lord, we need to have a real relationship with him and he with us. And it's all based on who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. So, Menashe, I'm going to recommend two things for you. First of all, I want you to understand that this understanding came to you from reading the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And really thinking about that scripture. Menashe, God wants you to know him in and through his word. Now, please, that's not the only place you can know God. I believe we know God in our experiences of prayer. We know God in our experiences of worship. We know God in our experiences of Christian community. We know God in our experiences of serving him. I understand that. You could even say we can know God in our sufferings. Paul talked about the fellowship of his sufferings. All of those things are true, but our number one consistent way that we can know God is by understanding him from the revelation of his word, what he's given to us in his Bible. So Manasha, I would say, read your Bible and read it thoughtfully, read it carefully, read it with meditation upon it, just like God spoke to you through Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. So get into the word of God and get into it in a way that is both spirit led and truly doesn't just read the word as if it's blah, 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 but is thinking about it and really letting it nourish your soul. So that's the first thing. Again, I do want to stress, we can know God in ways other than reading our Bible, but reading and thinking about how God has revealed himself to us in the word, that's how we know him primarily. Second thing, find somebody in your life who you understand they really know God and spend time with them and ask them about their relationship with God. Manash, I really recommend that to you. Find somebody in your life who really knows the Lord. And if you can't think of anybody, then pray and ask God, God, show me somebody who knows you and show me what I can learn from them. Now, that person may not be perfect. That person may have some things in their life that you don't want to imitate, but 
we can learn something from our brothers or sometimes sisters as well, of course, who uh, have gone further in their relationship with the Lord than we have. So those are the two things that come to mind immediately. And Manasha, God bless you. God bless the Australian people. And I'm so happy to hear about what God is doing in your life. All right, next question comes from Agnes. Agnes says, is the oneness teaching a heresy? Is it a salvation issue if people believe or don't believe in the Trinity? One teacher on YouTube said that God told him that it wasn't a salvation issue. All right, Agnes, this is um, difficult because it's not always clear to us exactly where the line between essential doctrine and non-essential doctrine is. We talked about that at the very beginning. You know, be, uh, based on that kind of quote where we talk about the idea in essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, um, liberty, uh, in all things, love. Okay, so we understand it's not always easy to know where the line is between essential and non-essential doctrines. Now, we do have to say this, though, that only the real God, only the real Jesus can save. And if somebody's conception of God is so different from the scriptures that it's not the real God, if somebody's conception of Jesus is so different that it is not the true conception of Jesus, uh, it's not the Jesus of the Bible, then that Jesus can't save. And so that's why, again, with all respect to uh, Mormons, with all respect to Jehovah's Witnesses, the watchtower of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the elders and the writings of the Church of Latter-day Saints, they do not present a biblical real Jesus. The Jesus they present can't save. Now, your question here, Agnes, is, is the Jesus of oneness Pentecostalism in the same category? And I would say this. In general, yes, that Jesus is in the same case. Modalism, the Jesus-only doctrine, it is a far enough misconception about who God is and who Jesus is that I would call it a heresy. Here's the difficulty, is there is a um, whole continuum, there's a span of what people believe in that expression. There are people who have different takes on modalism, and some of them, I'd have to do more research to tell you categorically, but I can give you the principle, and then we would just have to break it down piece by piece and see how that principle applies. So I hope that's helpful for you, Agnes. Only the God of the Bible saves us. Only the Jesus of the Bible saves us. And though nobody's conception of God is perfect, that belongs to the Bible alone, and nobody's understanding of Jesus is perfect, if it is so far apart from what the Bible itself teaches, then there's trouble. And that God, that Jesus cannot save. Okay, thank you, Agnes. Menasha has another question. He says, hey, I've just started writing songs. Do you have any tips about how you could give me about Christian songwriting? And how important do you believe songs are? Well, Menasha, I think that songs are very important. I think that songs are something that are in some regard led by the Holy Spirit. Although I would say this, Menasha, be careful about saying um, this is God's song. This is a song that the Holy Spirit gave me because um, you don't want somebody to like or dislike your song and think that they're rejecting God if your song isn't very good. I, I hope you understand what I mean by that. 
I don't have any tips for you on songwriting other than I would just say this. I would say simply, again, spend a lot of times reading and meditating on the Psalms and as much as you can, make your songs out of the words and the ideas of the Bible itself. I wish there were more Christian songs straight from the scriptures. I, I think they're probably difficult to write. I understand that. But I, it seems to me like in 30 years ago, there were more of them. And so the only songwriting tip I can give you is as much as you can, let the words and the ideas of your song and your song writing come from the scriptures. God bless you in that. Uh, going on, Ekua412 says, David, what are your thoughts on the Lord's feasts? Do we celebrate them, talk about them, etc.? Is it Old Testament stuff or God wants us to celebrate it, but not as in Old Testament times? Thanks. Okay, here we go. Um, the feasts are part of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel. And this is what we have to understand about this. We are not under that ceremonial law. It, if somebody believes that Christians must, to, to honor God, they must keep the feasts of Israel, then you better take on the rest of the ceremonial law. You better do the ceremonial washings. You better do the ceremonial foods. You better do the, I mean, why not just throw in their animal sacrifice as well? You see, it's all part of a package and you can't take parts of the package and say, you must do this, but you're not obligated to do that. No, Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. And so we are not under obligation to keep it. Now, having said that, there's a lot we can learn from understanding and observing those feasts. So while a Christian is not under any obligation to keep those feasts, we have perfect liberty in Jesus Christ to keep them if you want to. If you want to observe the Passover or do a teaching thing, great, God bless you. Do it as unto the Lord. If you want to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, do it. That's wonderful. God will teach you something through it. You, you have perfect liberty to do it, but you don't have a scriptural obligation to do it as, script, as Christians. I think we need to get back to something. And man, this is something I want to talk more and more about. I want to get back more and more to the idea of a simple understanding of our Christian liberty. We have the liberty as, as Christians to do so many things or to not do them. We're free in Jesus Christ and the feasts and all that. Now, I, I think it's important for us as believers to understand the feasts and especially to understand how they point towards Jesus and were fulfilled in Jesus. But we are not under any obligation. As I said before, I'll say it again. If you keep the feasts, Keep them as under the Lord, celebrate it, but don't think it makes you any more right with God than your non-feast keeping brother or sister in Christ. Jesus is the basis of our righteousness, not our keeping or not keeping the feasts. Okay. Gino, great to see you. Thanks for your encouragement, brother. Thanks for your messages. I appreciate you, brother. Thanks. I'm glad you could catch me. A uh, few more questions, and then we're going to wrap up. Eddie says, hi from Scotland. The feast point to Jesus. Absolutely they do. Praise the Lord. Susan. Susan says, thank you. We learned so much today. God bless you, Susan. And finally, Joel says this. 
Hi, brother. I am okay in being very straightforward when applying for a job, telling them that I'm not available to work Sunday mornings because I serve uh, and go to church. You're asking, am I okay in doing that? Joel, if your conscience so convicts you before the Lord to say that you're going to set aside Sunday and not work on that day and to be very sure, then God bless you in that conviction. Again, I'm getting back to the idea of Christian liberty. It, it, you are absolutely free before God to say, nope, I'm going to set Sunday aside and I'm not going to work on that day. And I'm not going to take a job that requires me to work on Sunday. If that's your place, conscience before the Lord, Joel, then God bless you in it. And you are okay in doing that. Again, just say, don't think it makes you any more right with God than someone who feels like they can uh, do work on a Sunday and honor the Lord every day of the week. Regard every day as being set aside to God. But I, I want to affirm you in that, Joel. If that's how your conscience speaks to you, you have absolute freedom to do, just as you say, to be very straightforward and saying uh, when you're applying for jump, say that you will not work on a Sunday. So um, anyway, Joel, I think you, you have that freedom before the Lord. Okay, uh, that's going to be it for this time of question and answer. If there's any other questions, I'll write them down and give them to the next time. But thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Um, again, exciting things going on with Enduring Word. We're getting more and more translation back. It seems like every week things are going great with the um, website. I got to say I'm praising the Lord. The last month we had, the month of April 2019, we had more traffic to the Enduring Word website than ever. Thanks to you who are using the Bible resources, who are using our app available for iPads and iOS devices, and hopefully shortly for Android. And again, um, thank you to all those who pray for the work of Enduring Word. Please keep our work up in prayer and those of you who support it either through prayer or just through your generosity. Thanks and God bless you to everyone. Glad you could join us this week. Bye-bye and God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.